Brandon Charlton is a friend of mine. He is an Indiana Wesleyan graduate. He works in the chapel office. He works in the School of Theology and Ministry. He leads the gospel choir over across the parking lot there. And last week, Brandon took about 17 students down to Wilmore, Kentucky to experience the revival that's going on at Asbury. He said he walked in there and instantly felt this peace. He said it was like the the white noise of his anxiety that was always in the background just kind of quieted. He had a hard time putting his experience into words, but the words that he did use were words like peace and gentle and love and overwhelming. At one point, a man that Brandon hadn't met before came up to him and said, excuse me, this is going to sound strange, but do you lead worship? Because it seems like I'm supposed to ask you to go lead worship here. And Brandon said, yeah, I, I do. And he went up to the stage, and there were student worship leaders up there. This whole movement has been led by students, but Brandon was up there providing support. And for between 10, 15 hours over the next few days, Brandon participated in worship. Let me pause there because I don't know what your social media feeds look like, but on mine, there's a lot of conversation about what is and isn't going on at Asbury right now. Uh, some people are, are excited, some people are skeptical, some people are longing to be there, other people you're seeing more of a cynical side come out. And my intention this morning isn't to try to provide some kind of interpretation of what's taking place down there. I don't think I could even if I wanted to. But it might be helpful for us to pause and consider the words that we find in Acts Five this morning before we go any further. In Acts 5, if you will recall, there are the, the, the Christians, Peter, the disciples, they're, they're starting to get very vocal about their faith. This movement of Jesus Christ seems to be gaining traction. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, gather together and they want to they wanna stop it. And a very wise man, young man by the name of Gamaliel, stands up and he says, look, We've seen stuff like this happen before. And what we know is that if this is made of human hands, it's going to die down. It always does. But if this is of God, we're not going to be able to stop it. And we might even find ourselves fighting against God. And so regardless of what ever opinion you might have had coming into the sanctuary this morning, I would, I would invite you into the spirit of Gamaliel and simply acknowledge the sovereignty of God to do whatever it is that God is going to do. Whenever experiences like this seem to happen, the question that's always in my mind is, what happened next? What did you do next? And, and I had a chance to ask Brandon this question. I said, okay, Brandon, you're there. You're leading worship. You're back here. What was that like? 
What was that like for you to leave that revival and, and, and come back here to ordinary life? What was it like for you to walk down the mountain and brush your teeth? <laughs> and Brandon shared a number of things. He confessed wondering if maybe what he experienced was just emotionalism. Uh, he's, he's a little bit nervous that maybe there won't be fruit from this thing that he experienced. He wished he could still be there. <laughs> he did wonder why that type of thing didn't happen here. You may not know this, but there is a Christian university just across the parking lot. Uh, another one just down the road from here. Yet despite these questions and concerns, Brandon keeps coming back to this thought that he experienced the love of God in a power and powerful, indescribable way. Towards the end of our conversation, he shared with me a testimony that he had read from Sarah Edwards. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, lived centuries ago. But, but Sarah had an experience similar to this. And what she said was, I had no idea how near God was to me, nor how dear I was to him. Have you had a mountaintop experience before? Some kind of encounter with God, whether it was a revival or a camp, a conference, a retreat, maybe it was just a quiet moment in your kitchen. But you've had some kind of experience, even if just a flash of it, where you are aware of God's love for you, a mountaintop experience. All around the world today, people are hearing about the, the pinnacle of mountaintop experiences. They're hearing about the transfiguration. You saw it played out here this morning. I'm going to read through it one more time slowly. We'll, we'll pause every verse or so. But this is from Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. Okay, six days later. Six days after what? Uh, this is six days after Peter's declaration here. After Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, six days is also a little bit of a throwback here to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, we've got a mountaintop experience of Moses going up the mountain. You may remember this story. And Moses spends six days in this cloud of the glory of God. And Moses in this cloud, if you recall, he comes down and he is shining. His face is bright. His clothes are bright. So six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. I do wonder how the disciples knew it was Moses and Elijah. It's not like they're wearing name tags. They don't have some kind of yearbook they're going through. And, and what were they talking about? What is there to talk about? 
between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're not talking about the weather. Uh, We don't hear from Matthew, but Mark and Luke tell us that the three of them were talking about Jesus' upcoming exodus, this, this upcoming time when Jesus was going to leave this earth. Peter exclaimed, oh, Peter. I love Peter. I love Peter's stories. Bless his heart. I am thankful for Peter, like people like Peter, who will blurt out the things they're thinking, uh, because oftentimes I'm thinking them too. I'm just too nervous to say them out loud. So he's, he's blurting words out. Both Mark and Luke tell us that he was talking because he didn't really know what else to say. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter is having the ultimate mountaintop experience, and he doesn't want it to end. He's offering to set up camp, to create spaces for people to dwell so that they don't have to leave. Because why in the world would you ever want to walk down this mountain? But even as he spoke, and I love this part because Peter Peter doesn't even get an answer to his question. He's he's talking and it's it's just like, sit down, Peter. The grown-ups are talking. (laughs) So he doesn't get an answer. While he even spoke, as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. He brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples have gone from seeing the glory of God, from seeing the blinding light, to actually experiencing it. They're not watching this happen to Jesus. They are now enveloped in it. They are immersed in it. And then they, they hear the voice, and this voice, it's somewhat different than the voice they hear at the baptism, because at the baptism, the voice is coming down from heaven. This is my beloved son. But here on the mountaintop, the voice is in the cloud, and they are surrounded by the cloud. They are surrounded by this voice. This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Why those words? I mean, we just read that six days later, Peter had already said something similar. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. But when we hear those words coming from God, from the cloud, we hear that declaration confirmed, which is so often how God seems to work. God testifies to God's self over and over and over again, confirming what is true about him. The voice also makes it very clear who is supreme in this trio. Peter was going to make, you know, a shelter for one, a shelter for two, a shelter for three. And this voice makes it clear who's number one. (laughs) They knew that Jesus was a powerful prophet. But this voice that they are immersed in is letting them know he is the greatest of the prophets. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Peter, you can't build three shelters. You can't even stand on your own two feet. Then Jesus came over 
and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone what you have seen. And I I imagine the disciples going, Okay, Jesus, we're actually not quite sure what we even saw in the first place. We don't know how we would talk about what just happened, even if we wanted to. They have gone up the mountain, and they have come down the mountain. Do you know what it's like to come down the mountain? (laughs) To have an experience, uh, some kind of experience that you wish you could hold on to a little bit longer, and then you're right back down the mountain. Uh, This is a silly example, but I have this with books. Do you ever have this where you're you're reading a book and you are so immersed in the book and then you get to the end and you're 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 like a little depressed? (laughs) There's actually studies out on this. That shouldn't surprise you. There are studies out on everything. But there are there are studies about how people can get so enamored with books, with the story, that it's like the character has actually set up a house inside their brain. And they call this um, emotional transportation is the technical term. And and the book ends and people are oh. There's this deflation. You want to know what happens next. This is why I don't like reading on Kindles. Because if I have a book, I can at least pace myself. I have a, a, a concrete, physical reminder of how much is left. When I'm on the Kindle, I'm just swiping through, and all of a sudden I turn, and the book is done, and I had not prepared myself for this emotionally. Silly example. But many of you know that feeling. In youth ministry, uh, we see this happen a lot where a teenager might go to camp. They have an experience. They wish they can hold on to it, but they're going back down the mountain. And as they're going down the mountain, they've got commitments that they're making. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to hold on to this for as long as I can. Campfire commitments. And it's at the bottom of the mountain where we see the enemy start to work. The enemy can't do anything at the top of the mountain. The enemy could not stop the presence of the Lord, even if he tried, and he's tried. But down here on the bottom, he can start to mess with our minds to make us see things differently. And there are four tools of the enemy that I think often come up after you walk down the mountain. Uh, the first one of these, the first tool is doubt. And this is, this is the oldest trick in the book, quite literally. This is what we see the serpent doing in the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve, they have this relationship with God. They know what it's like to be in God's presence. And the serpent comes up and says, did God really say? He puts in seeds of doubt. We could imagine Peter going through something like this. Did Did that voice really call Jesus the the son? Are you sure that was really a voice and not just the wind? Come on, Peter, you were really tired. Is it possible that was just a dream? That, That would be the simpler explanation. 
And who knows what Peter must have been thinking when Jesus was led away and crucified. What seeds of doubt are growing during that experience? The first trick here is doubt. The second is shame. We have an experience, and the further we move away from it, the more embarrassed we become. Maybe your reaction that moment, you, maybe you cried, maybe you had a hand in the air, and you come away from that, and you just, you just feel a little, a little embarrassed. I had what I saw as my first encounter with the Lord when I was four years old. It was Christmas morning, I was sitting in our living room, and we were opening up presents, and as I was sitting there, it slowly started to occur to me, I didn't get my mom a present. I did not get my mom a present. And I started having this panicky feeling. All of a sudden, my dad pulls out this small box, and it says, to mommy, love Amanda. And, and my mom opens it up, and it's these three little brass swans that we kept on the living room table. And I watched all of this take place, and my first thought was, Santa must have brought me this gift for me to give to my mom. And then I realized, wait a minute. I never asked Santa to do that. I knew that Santa couldn't read my mind. I had sat on his lap, and I did not tell him to bring brass swans. And so my very next thought was, oh, Jesus must have told Santa to drop off a gift for me to give my mom. And I remember sitting there going, Thank you, Jesus. When I got to be about nine, ten years old, I was really embarrassed by that story. I had other explanations for what happened, and it seemed so childish and silly. And it's only been as I've gotten older that I've been able to appreciate that story again. Okay, now was that a miracle of Jesus having a conversation with Santa Claus. I won't get into that right now. But I do know this. That was a powerful moment for me in the way that I understood my relationship with God. I had this clear, concrete experience that Jesus knows me, that he can anticipate what I need even before I need it, and that he will care for me. I am grateful for that experience with the Lord because of how it has shaped me and how I respond to the Lord today. The third one, this one is short and simple. We've got doubt, we've got shame, and then we've got forgetfulness. Sometimes we have an experience, and the further away we get from it, the more fuzzy it becomes on the borders, and eventually it totally slips from our memory. I don't even have examples of this because how would I? I would have forgotten them. <laughs> but over and over again in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see that when the disciples are, excuse me, when the, when, when the Israelites are in trouble, it's because they've forgotten something. It's because God did something and they forgot about it. This last one, this last tool is a powerful one, and that is the tool of guilt. Sometimes the enemy attacks us with guilt for the things we think we should be experiencing. Many of you know Mary Pat Fuller, a dear friend of this congregation, dear friend of mine. She is in Florida now. 
But she and her husband Jim were a part of the Asbury Revival back in 1970. Uh, I spoke with Mary Pat. She gave me permission to share this. Uh, But she was there when the revival first broke out in chapel, and she said there were no words to describe it. It was just pure worship. She said it felt like being in the presence of God's glory. She said she couldn't get enough of her Bible. She She would run home to her dorm room to sleep, to grab a meal, and then would run right back to the chapel because she didn't want to miss anything. But then, she said, then you come down the mountain, and you're back in class and and back in life. And Mary Pat said that she struggled for years and years with not feeling God's presence in a way that was satisfying or, or intensely real. I'm not feeling it, she'd think. What's wrong with me? I must be out of relationship with God. My relationship with him is just not the same. I'm not doing enough. I don't have the feelings that I had before. I'm not as hungry for the word now as I was back then. Have you had some of those thoughts yourself? Mary Pat carried this guilt for a long time. Over 50 years, in fact. 50 years of wondering what she was doing wrong. It was only six months ago that Mary Pat had a breakthrough with her spiritual director, Her spiritual director asked a simple question. She said, do you think it could be you're always trying to find that same feeling you had so powerfully in 1970? Mary Pat said a light bulb went off in her mind. She thought of Moses, whose face was shining when he came down from the mountain. In fact, the people asked him to wear a veil. It was so bright. And maybe she wasn't doing anything wrong. Maybe this was perhaps an experience with the Lord whose intensity was slowly fading as she came back down the mountain. I asked Mary Pat the question that was weighing on my mind this past Friday. I said, Mary Pat, you had seven days of experiencing the presence of God, and then you had over 50 years of guilt. Was it worth it? I barely got the words out before Mary Pat said, absolutely, absolutely. Just to have a glimpse of what it means to be in God's presence, it gives me such hope. Better is seven days in your courts than 50 years elsewhere. Mary Pat's mountaintop experience was not an emotional intimacy to be maintained. It was a foretaste, an appetizer of what is to come. This wasn't an experience of judgment. It was an experience of hope. I want to pause here because I've been talking about what it's like to come down the mountain, but I need to acknowledge that there are likely some, probably many people here in this room that don't know what that's like. You haven't had those mountaintop experiences. Maybe you've been at those same camps, those same retreats where everybody else seems to be keenly aware of something that you're just not feeling. They've got their hands up, their eyes closed, and you're trying, but you've got nothing. 
You don't know what it's like to come down from the mountaintop because you haven't had that experience yourself. There is a, a picture I'd like to show you. Uh, it's one of, at one point, it was one of the most famous pictures in the world, paintings in the world. This is Raphael painting the Transfiguration. Originally, he had just uh, worked on the top half, and then he saw one of his rival, rivals released this painting that had all these colors, all these people, and so he went back and he added a whole bottom scene to it. A little, little jealous, but in this case, I'm glad he was. So up there at the top, we've got the three disciples. We've got the uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus up there. And what I love about this picture is it shows us exactly what's going on at the same time the transfiguration is taking place. Because there at the base is a demon-possessed man, demon-possessed boy, and the disciples are down there trying to cast this demon out. You can see how chaotic it looks there. People pointing, moving around. There's Matthew in the bottom corner there uh, writing in a book. Some people know what it's like to be up at the top, seeing Jesus transformed. Others of us just feel like we're at the bottom, getting mocked by a demon. What I want you to hear is that whether you are on the top of the mountain or you are at the bottom of the mountain, you are still a disciple of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is present at the top of the mountain, and he is present at the bottom of the mountain. He comes down, the disciples down there, their faith is failing even. Their faith is not strong, it is weak. But Jesus is still there. Because the presence of God is not a reward, but a gift. I believe that Jesus himself spoke of this kind of experience in a conversation with Thomas in John 20, 29, he says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who haven't seen me and yet have believed. There is blessing at the top of the mountain for those who see God, and there are blessings at the bottom of the mountain for those who have not seen God. Because that's how God works. You're blessed if you do, you're blessed if you don't. It is in the very nature of God to bless. And so we are called to be faithful in the ordinary. Just the other day, John was telling me, my husband, yes, we pray for fire and we pray for daily bread because you can't eat fire. <laughs> you might see in yourself a lack of emotion, a weariness. Perhaps you lament that you don't feel the spark that you once felt. But Jesus is still there, even if you can't feel it. In fact, I would invite you this morning, this morning to just take a moment, just even 30 seconds, and simply close your eyes, take a moment of prayer, and simply say, Jesus, you are here. Jesus, you are here.
Matthew 17, verse 8. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The clouds are gone. The visions are gone. The awe is gone. The prophets are gone. The voice is gone. But Jesus remains himself alone. And he has promised to remain. He does not break his promises. And because of that, I am convinced that neither emotions nor a lack of emotions, neither excitement nor boredom, neither fervor nor complacency, neither intensity nor weariness, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is our prayer this morning, Lord. That whether we are on top of the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain, somewhere in between, that you would give us the faith to know that you are there even when we can't feel you. We praise you that your promises are stronger than our efforts. That your presence is stronger than our faith. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would fortify us against the tools of the enemy and that we would instead daily walk in the light you give us, eating the bread you provide us. So that, Lord, we might enjoy the day that is coming when we will not get just glimpses and foretastes of what it is to be with you, but that we will spend all of eternity with you in your glory. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.